This is day three of the 2007 Palm Springs Bible School. Our second period teacher is Brother Jim Harper. His topic is the work of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. His topic for today is the active role of heaven. Brother Jim. Before I start, brothers and sisters, I just have to say that Bible school committee members have to solve all kinds of problems. And true to form, Brother Jeff has solved the problem of getting me through my material on time. You see, he owns a remote like this as well. <laughs> All right. The active role of heaven, brothers and sisters. And this is something that has it really impressed itself on me as I read through the book of Acts. And just uh, saw these things happening over and over again. A couple of questions to give ourselves focus and direction. First of all, how did the glorified Jesus continue to work throughout New Testament times from his ascension to God onward? And secondly, how did the apostles view their role in the work of the ascended Lord Jesus Christ? All right. And we'll attempt to address those questions under these two headings. First of all, we're going to look, uh, God permitting, at promises Jesus made to his disciples before uh, his ascension and how those play out in some of the rest of the New Testament. And then we're going to, if we have time, look at the testimony of the apostles themselves as to how they perceived things. <clears throat> And so the promises of Jesus, and we begin perhaps with one of the best known and, and greatest of them. He says, as recorded at the end of Matthew's Gospel, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. And I don't want now, brothers and sisters, for us to digress into ways in which the Lord obviously and clearly works in our own lives, but rather we're dealing with the work of the Holy Spirit in New Testament times. And these words were, first of all, addressed to the apostles. And there is a very real sense in which the New Testament times were an age unto themselves. It was an age of Holy Spirit empowerment. And it, it, it endured for that period of time in the Lord's work through His apostles. And this is a sweeping promise by Jesus. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. It's a sweeping promise to His apostles, and it hardly suggests, at least to my mind, a one-time fulfillment on the day of Pentecost. In His glory... Jesus would actively work with his apostles throughout the rest of New Testament times. The immediate objective has been defined there. The immediate objective of the Lord's promise was to advance the cause of the Great Commission. In a sense, that was Matthew's record of the Great Commission. To make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them. The empowerment that Jesus gave on the day of Pentecost began to fulfill the promise. And it happened again and again and again. And this is what impressed itself upon me as I simply read through the book of Acts, 
set the baggage aside and said, what is it saying to me? Preaching the gospel of salvation, brothers and sisters, to a world that was dying, orchestrated, directed, empowered by the Lord Jesus himself, was the first priority of Holy Spirit activity in New Testament times. And edifying the body of believers quickly became the second important priority. We'll do our best to explore in and around the first of these today. And God permitting, perhaps a bit more of the second of these priorities in our our class tomorrow. But giving eternal life in the power of the Holy Spirit is still to come. Baptisms there were even multiple baptisms of the apostles, and we'll look again at one classic pair of these, uh, at least today. But the baptism of the Holy Spirit is still to come. The work of the Holy Spirit in New Testament times was a developmental work. It was not a work of completion. We come to Mark's Gospel. He said to them, and again the context is the 11 from verse 14, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And there is Mark's version of the Great Commission. And he goes on to say, or Mark goes on to record, And they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. This is going to be a partnership that we read of in the book of Acts and on through the the New Testament. A partnership between these men who were like us, who went forth in the name of Jesus, and heaven itself working with them and empowering them as needed and when needed and where needed. This again in Mark's account is the Great Commission. Hardly the work of one day, the Lord worked with His apostles in an ongoing manner until the purposes were accomplished through them. Now just pause for a moment here, brothers and sisters. I think we've taken on board the kind of thing that you could read in Benjamin Warfield's book, that this was the age of the apostles. And I have deliberately attempted to bring myself away from that kind of terminology. This is the age of the Holy Spirit working through miracles, wonders, and signs administered by the glorified Lord Jesus Christ through His apostles, who are His hands and are His feet and are His mouth for Him, His friends on earth. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. It's not an age of the apostles. It's an age entirely under the control of heaven itself. And so I no longer accept the idea that the apostles possessed from the day of Pentecost forward some miraculous power that they could pass on. And that at the end, brothers and sisters, of the the apostolic age, the spirit gifts ended because the apostles died. It worked the other way around. That's the way life works. When God's purpose with us is finished, it's over. And we die. And that's all right. The best is yet to come. And so, when the end of the Lord's purposes with the miracles, wonders, and signs comes to its its culmination, 
those things will cease and the last of the apostles will die. Heaven doesn't have to say, well, there goes the last of the apostles. What do we do now? No more spirit gifts. No, 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 no. It works the other way around. It's the way it worked with John the Baptist. When it was over, it was over and it wasn't pleasant. And he understood that. He must increase, I must decrease. He understood that. We must understand that. You know, if the Lord's work with me is done with this period, I won't see lunch. And that's okay. That's okay. The best is yet to come. So the Lord worked through His apostles in an ongoing manner until His purposes were accomplished through them. The gifts ceased and the, uh, the last of the apostles died off. The Lord's work was done with them. He has much better things in store for them. That's all for now. And the historical record here in Mark seems deliberately qualified. The Lord working with them. The age of eternal life for all believers has not yet come. And so now we want to focus. We want to look at promises Jesus made to His apostles while He was yet with them before the ascension, before even in many respects His crucifixion. And then we want to see how these play out in their work through the rest of the New Testament. And we go back to Luke chapter 12. We'll start with a couple of promises Jesus made in Luke's gospel, and we'll go to Acts and see how Luke records the fulfillment, the keeping of these promises. You'll remember this. Now, when they bring you to the synagogues and magistrates and authorities, do not worry about how or what you should answer or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say, or this one, again in Luke chapter 21, you will be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake, but it will turn out for you as an occasion for testimony. Therefore, settle it in your hearts not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. There's the promise. And the Lord is saying this to them ever before His crucifixion. Oh, what the Lord understood. It's just absolutely breathtaking. He's already projected Himself in, into the, the age of, of His glory, brothers and sisters. The Holy Spirit will teach you what you ought to say. I will give you a mouth and wisdom. They're equivalent statements. The ad hoc work of the Holy Spirit was, in fact the ongoing work of the glorified Jesus. And what I mean by that, ad hoc, it came at a time when it was needed for the purpose that it was needed, and then when it was over, it was over. It was toward a specific end that these empowerments would come, and when that was over, it was over, and it would come again for a specific end. It was, in fact, the ongoing work of the glorified Jesus. The Holy Spirit is personified. The Holy Spirit will teach you in that hour what you ought to say. I will give you a mouth and wisdom. It's the person of the glorified Jesus who's behind the personification of the Holy Spirit in, in these promises. The empowering of the apostles for the purpose of bearing witness was carried out by Jesus 
when he saw fit to do it, where he saw fit to do it, as he saw fit to do it, and I could add, as only he would know when it was fit to do it. His apostles, in turn, had to depend day by day by day on the faithfulness of Jesus to his promise. And so when they got up in the morning, brothers and sisters, I don't envision them flexing their Holy Spirit muscles and saying, let's rattle off a few words in Cappadocian before we head out for breakfast. I don't see them having that kind of power. And I don't, I don't mean to say that flippantly, because it sounds like it. But if they needed that day the ability to do some miracle, the Lord knew it, and He'd provide it when it was necessary. Promise kept. And we'll go to the healing of the lame man, <clears throat> and we'll go to Acts 4, actually, the sequel. You remember how after the healing of the lame man that the, the crowds rushed to see what has happened. They had been, they'd gone on into the temple and the man was leaping and praising God and, and they rushed to see this and Peter seized the moment and began his preaching, and we see that the message he preached in Acts 3 was parallel to the message he, he spoke in Acts 2. The, 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 it's a replication, again, of what was preached on Pentecost. You remember that they were arrested. Peter and John were arrested. So, I think, was the lame man. They were put in prison overnight, and the next day, all three of them are on the carpet. Peter and John and the man standing there with them. And they are answering to the rulers. It came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them, Peter and John, in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? They have been brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, In that very hour, I will give you a mouth and wisdom. Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, here's the mouth, here's the wisdom. Let it be known to you to all, to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth... And notice the phrasing in Acts is, is, is impeccable. It's no longer just Jesus of Nazareth, the way Peter began his address in Acts 2, verse 22, and had to bring them to the, the realization that God had made that Jesus whom they crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, all the stops are pulled out here. Jesus Christ of Nazareth, and he says that to the rulers... You've got to understand, he's no longer just Jesus of Nazareth, the prophet of Galilee. This is Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. By him, this man stands here before you whole. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And there's the mouth and the wisdom that came under inspiration to Peter in that very hour. A mouth and wisdom. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they'd been with Jesus. Vitally important. 
the apostles will begin to be magnified in Jerusalem. And it's already beginning to happen. And they know that these men had been with Jesus. They are the visible link to Jesus on this earth. And they are His hands, and they are His feet, and they are His mouth. And I always love this little expression, uneducated and untrained. Agramatos and idiotes. I sympathize with that. All right? Uneducated, ungrammared, and idiots. That's how they viewed him. But transfigured men, transformed men, whatever else the punctuated empowerments that they received from heaven to carry out the Great Commission, brothers and sisters, it had a lasting effect on them as well. And within them developed an indwelling spirit that is also making them full of the Holy Spirit in that respect. But the, multi but the, the miraculous empowerments are punctuated events. They realized that they'd been with Jesus, and seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it saying, what shall we do to these men? For indeed, a notable miracle has been done through them, is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. We cannot deny it. What had Jesus promised? Your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. And they wrote the last word on that by saying this. And so Acts 4, verses 8 to 16, brothers and sisters, is both a fulfillment of the promise of Jesus and it's the language of Holy Spirit baptism in the sense of giving miraculous inspiration and empowerment. And we note, too, that this event occurred sometime after the day of Pentecost. Pentecost did not provide a once-and-for-all baptism of the Holy Spirit in any kind of sense of making the apostles repositories of Holy Spirit power. That baptism of continuous Holy Spirit power is yet to come. The Lord Jesus filled His men with Holy Spirit. He inspired them. It's, and remember, we said it the first day, the more closely we find ourselves drawing the lines between the New Testament work of the Holy Spirit and the way that God worked through the power of His Holy Spirit in Old Testament times, probably the closer we are to understanding what's going on. And there in Old Testament times, the inspiration of the prophets was a punctuated phenomenon. Go back to the judgment, judges. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Samson. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Samson. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Samson. They were punctuated events. And Samson did the mighty works. And still it is so here. This is not the ultimate yet. This is a developmental work. The work of the apostles was the ongoing work of the glorified Lord Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. He's in control. Another example of that promise kept. And now we come forward to the Apostle Paul. We come to Acts 13. And we go from Jerusalem to Cyprus. And on our way to Cyprus, we'll stop, brothers and sisters, at Antioch in Syria, up on the northeast corner there of the, of the Mediterranean Sea. And there in the Ecclesia, in Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers. You can read of this at the beginning of Acts 13. And they are fasting and praying. And I have to believe, brothers and sisters, being the, the nerve center that Antioch had become for preaching the gospel, that they are fasting and praying for direction from heaven. What do we do next? Where do we go next? 
Where do you want us to go to carry the gospel to a perishing world? And then, perhaps through the prophet or a prophet there at Antioch, the Holy Spirit says, Separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I have called them. And so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, that's the Lord Jesus accomplishing this by the power of the Holy Spirit, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they, Barnabas and Saul, went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus, the active role of heaven. And when they'd gone through the island to Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew, whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. And he was. I, I think we'll see some evidence of that momentarily. This man called for Barnabas and Saul. That was intelligent. We'll see more evidence. And he sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus the sorcerer, for so his name is translated, interpreted. We'll talk about very briefly the interpretation of tongues, but that's the same word. Withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So here's the adversary. We've got a variation on the theme. They are now before a ruler. Not an adversarial ruler, but in his midst is one who's the adversary. And we're going to see again the Lord Jesus taking control of this situation and bringing a wonderful, wonderful result out of it. Then Saul, who's also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, in that very hour. So this promise even applies to the Apostle Paul, originally given in Luke's Gospel to the, to the twelve. Take away Judas, add Matthias. But it applies to Paul as well, in that very hour. And Paul's experience invites comparison with Peter's. There is the Greek, and except that we've got Saul and Peter, all right, you take a look Filled with the Holy Spirit. Filled with Spirit Holy here, brothers and sisters. Same Greek word, right down to the verb parsing. Exactly the same here. We'll see a, a similar kind of comparison another time in the book of Acts. This is a very, very similar experience to what Peter had before the council. And the, just to, to fill out this verb parsing, it's the aorist tense we spoke of. It's the passive voice. So it's done to Peter. It's done to Paul. It's the participle. They're filled at that moment, with the Holy Spirit. The Greek is exactly the same, and the language is that of Holy Spirit baptism, an ad hoc inspiration in New Testament times when it applies to special empowerment. And so, Paul says something that none of us would dare to say. He has sensed this empowerment. He has sensed the connection with heaven. His will is entirely in sync with that of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he opens his mouth, it will be the, Lord, the Lord's words that he speaks. And he says to Elimus, the hand of the Lord is upon you. He's not saying, I'm going to put my hands on you. He already has had by inspiration 
a knowledge of the judgment that Jesus is going to carry out. The hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him. Paul's put his neck in a noose here. And Jesus doesn't let him get hung. Immediately a dark mist fell on him. Fell on him. Remember yesterday? Not All right. Where did it come from? And he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Prophecy, the immediate fulfillment of prophecy. Under inspiration, Paul prophesied this judgment of Elimus. And Jesus carried out the judgment. Paul was given a mouth and wisdom and his adversary was not able to contradict or resist. And he went around groping for somebody to lead him by the hand. The man made blind? You know, there we are, isn't it? Because he had resisted the truth? It just occurred to me. Thank you, Brother Nigel. Thank you. A dark mist fell on him. And it uses Holy Spirit baptism language, except that this intervention of heaven came in the form of a miraculous judgment rather than a gift that promised life. This is the great thing we see of these events in the New Testament, brothers and sisters. We see Jesus as the Savior of men through the power of the Holy Spirit, and we also see Him as the Judge of men. And if our friends in the religious world around us want to claim those kind of powers for themselves, show us both sides of the coin, categorically, unequivocally, without any question. Not just the saving power, but the judgment power. Strike an Ananias or Sapphira dead. Would they dare do it? Neither did Peter. He pronounced the judgment and Christ did it. And same here. The proconsul believed when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. And it's this phrasing that just says to me, this man is intelligent. Because he's perceived this is not just the preaching of Saul and Barnabas. It's not just their teaching about the Lord. He has, I think, perceived and gotten right to the heart of the matter. This is the teaching of the Lord that he's hearing. I will give you a mouth and wisdom. This man, Sergius Paulus, was an intelligent man, and I think he recognized this truth. In some way, these were the words of heaven that he was hearing. Another promise, brothers and sisters, going back now again to the Gospels before the Lord's crucifixion, going to that series of, of, of chapters, John 14 to 16, and Jesus promises to his apostles, whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Or in John 16, most assuredly I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. And I just want to highlight that. That is again one of those Holy Spirit baptism words that we looked at on Monday. But I want for us to also see that this word is going to come back in a moment in exactly this kind of setting in Acts. Because Jesus is inviting his apostles to pray 
to pray for the help that would come from His Father in Christ's name. Until now you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. And before we go over to Acts, I just want you to notice something. There's been a changing of the guard here, in a sense. Previously, we looked at promises that Luke recorded in his gospel, and we look at his fulfillment of those, or his record of the fulfillment in Acts. Now we are going back and looking at promises that Jesus made recorded in John's gospel, and Luke will show us the fulfillment in Acts. And the changing of the guard is seamless. Such is the integrity of the Gospels and the book of Acts. Such is the integrity of the New Testament. Though the promise is recorded by John, Luke will show us the keeping of the promise. And we come to Jerusalem, and we come to Acts chapter 4, and we come to the sequel to the healing of the lame man and the interrogation of the council who threaten the, Peter and John and send them on their way. And they come back to their companions. It picks up about verse 23 or thereabouts. And in verse 29, I want you to see what they're doing. They are praying. Whatever you ask the Father in my name, He will give you. And so they pray, Now, Lord, look on their threats and give. It's the same word. Grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. And as their profile grows, so, brothers and sisters, does the threat of persecution from the rulers. And by the grace of God, they will remain untouchable, at least the apostles will, for some time yet to come. James, no. Ultimately, he's slain by Herod. But the apostolic college will remain largely intact up until the time of the Jerusalem conference with their center in Jerusalem. They will remain untouchable in, in, in most regards, not entirely, but in most regards. While even the persecution of Saul of Tarsus will drive others out, the apostles remain untouchable in many, many respects. And we'll perhaps try to come back and, and comment on that, if, if time allows. But here's what they're doing. They're, they're asking, grant to your servants that with all boldness... I mean, they're men like us. They've just been threatened. And they realize that along with the power to speak the word, they need to have the reassurances of heaven that give them the boldness to do this. And so, grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal. Marvelous echo of the healing of the lame man there. When Peter stretched out his hand to help that man up, that was the hand of Jesus at that moment. Lifting that man up by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. Whatever you ask in my name. And we're getting an interpretation of this now. We're getting an interpretation of this now. Preaching in the name of Jesus in Jerusalem was dangerous work. The apostles needed boldness. They asked for boldness. They were given boldness. This prayer in the name of Jesus was not so much a formula of words, brothers and sisters, as it was a request for help 
as the apostles preached salvation in the name of the glorified Savior. Or to put it another way, prayer in the name of Jesus is prayer dedicated to His service. And when I began to realize that, thinking these things through, I've had perhaps to examine my own prayers a bit more carefully. Are they truly, genuinely, from my heart, prayers dedicated to His service that I can legitimately offer in His name? Not just prayers that incorporate His name in the phrasing. We'll come back to that. Promise kept. And so they've said, grant, Lord. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, this is Peter and John and their companions, who almost certainly must have include, included the rest of the apostles and perhaps some others. But they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the Word of God with boldness. And this is Holy Spirit baptism language. I'm going to ask you to, to, to bear with me on this uh, for another moment. They spoke the Word of God with boldness. And that is going to play out now through Acts 5 and over into to, to the end of Acts 5. Boldness came with the inspirations, the Holy Spirit baptisms, strengthening them to continue preaching in Jerusalem. And the results, brothers and sisters, of Acts 4, verses 29 to 31, and these following verses into chapter 5, were nothing less than a replication of Pentecost. There was a theophany. On the day of Pentecost, there was the rushing mighty wind and the tongues as of fire. And now there is earthquake. Let's make no mistake about it. When they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. There were the inspirations that came. Here's Acts 2, day of Pentecost. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Here's Acts 4, after Pentecost. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And it is not just the same in English. There's the Greek. You find a way to fit a file card edgewise between those. It's exactly the same. Exactly the same phrasing. There's the word filled again. There is the parsing of the verb. It is aorist, it is passive, it is indicative in both cases. As simple a statement of past action performed on the apostles as you can have. I don't understand, but I'm not a language expert. And as I said yesterday, just a simple physics teacher, in fact, a retread engineer. All right? Uh, so I don't understand things of language. You tell me how those are different. Our theology makes them different. Our theology says, this is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And this is something different. And I thought that, brothers and sisters. I don't see that. I just don't see it. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, yes, it came on Pentecost. Jesus said categorically that it would. But hasn't it again happened? I believe it has. Because I believe all of those events, as we saw from a totally different direction yesterday, were incipient events for the promulgation of the gospel, the Great Commission, and ultimately for the edifying of believers. 
but the best is yet to come. And the outcome's the same. They began to speak the word with other tongues. They spoke the word of God with boldness. And on Friday, God willing, we'll attempt to make some connections here between speaking with other tongues and speaking the word of God. Because I believe on the day of Pentecost, this is very much what was embodied in what they spoke with tongues. To the Jewish people who understood, who understood what they were hearing. Before we proceed... Theophany the same, inspiration the same, outcome the same. The apostles are involved in both cases, so that's the same. And may I also say, brothers and sisters, that the greater spiritual lesson in both Acts 2 and Acts 4 is the same. If in Acts 2 the Spirit filled the whole house where they were sitting, and as we said on Monday, that's Old Testament temple language. And so they are now, in a sense, the house in which God dwells by His Spirit. You take a look at Acts 4, starting at verse 23. You'll be able to find at least a handful of details that also tell us that this harkens back to the dedication of the temple in 2 Chronicles chapter 5 and 2 Chronicles chapter 6. You'll see those details. This again is telling us that these men are the house of God in whom God wishes to dwell. So even the spiritual lessons are the same in Acts 2 and Acts 4. I fail in my simplicity to see how they are different in what they have to, 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 to mean and to, and to teach us. And the Apostles' prayer, Lord, grant to your servants, continued to be answered. God continued to stretch out His hand, granting signs and wonders to be done in the name of the glorified Jesus. The active role of heaven continued and continued and continued. We go on to Acts 5. Through the hands of the apostles. I like the phrasing there. I particularly like the choice of the preposition. It isn't just by the hands of the apostles. It's through the hands. Who's doing it through the hands of the apostles? I believe it's the glorified Lord Jesus Christ. That this is His work. And they are His men. And they are recognized they have been with Jesus. Through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. And they were with one accord in Solomon's porch. Anytime we see this, one Greek word, one accord, in the early chapters of Acts, it's a reference to the apostles, brothers and sisters. You go back and look at Acts 1, long about verse 14, 15. Look at Acts 2, verse 1. Look at the antecedents. Look at the antecedent here. Through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. And in a sense, it plays off against what we saw in Acts 1. Judas was not with one accord with them, and he went to his own place. And when the day of Pentecost comes, Matthias and the eleven are in one place with one accord. These are the ones that, that Luke is showing us that are being magnified to carry forth the work of the Great Commission. So through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. They were all with one accord in Solomon's porch, yet none of the rest dared join them. But the people esteemed them highly. And if you read a half a dozen different expositors on verse 13, you'll get a half a dozen different ideas as to what that means. 
None of them right. <laughs> That's an arrogant statement. That is an arrogant statement, brothers and sisters, and I may just as well be wrong. But I believe what that saying is, this was scary work. And it was the work that Christ granted the gift of boldness to his apostles to carry out. And the rest of the ecclesia does not have to join them in this work. It's going to be bad enough when Saul of Tarsus has to track down moving targets for them to have been stationary targets standing there with the rest of the apostles. The apostles are untouchable for a couple of reasons. The people esteemed them highly. And you remember how the, even the rulers were afraid to take Jesus for the very same reason. They have to do it secretly. All right? And there's another reason. Because Saul of Tarsus, who would ultimately spearhead the purge of Christians in Jerusalem, had a mentor, and his name was Gamaliel. And very shortly, Gamaliel is going to say, leave these men alone. Leave these men alone. And so Paul may have honored the, the edict of his mentor, but I think he was bound and determined to prove him wrong as he went after the, the other believers in Jerusalem. This was dangerous work. And none of them dared join with the apostles there in Solomon's court to do this, at Solomon's porch. And they didn't have to. Christ was working through them. That doesn't mean that the lovely old sister who learned the truth from the apostles didn't tell their neighbor, didn't tell their relatives, didn't tell their friends. I'm sure the truth went forward that way as it does today. But they didn't have to stand up there with the apostles in Solomon's porch and be counted as those amongst the preachers who are growing in their magnitude because the Lord is magnifying them. And with that growth of magnitude comes the dangers as well. The people esteemed them highly, and believers were added to the, to, the, the, to, the, the, uh, to the body. Preaching was the work of the apostles who asked for and received heaven's special gift of boldness. And believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, and that's the language of Pentecost all over again. It's the language of Pentecost all over again. The apostles seem, brothers and sisters, at least from a miraculous empowerment point of view, the apostles seem to have had continuous access to God and His Holy Spirit power. Whatever you ask, He will give in my name. And we've seen the context now of how that works out in the preaching of salvation. There is no other name given under heaven amongst men whereby we must be saved. The apostles have had access continuously to God and His Holy Spirit power rather than continuous possession of miraculous power. Their work was a work of ongoing partnership with God in which their will and the will of God became fully aligned. They were all with one accord with God. And God was exceedingly active and evident in fulfilling His role in the partnership. In fact, He is the initiator of these roles. 
And so they brought the sick onto the streets and laid them on beds and couches that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. There's no Holy Spirit power in Peter's shadow any more than there will be in Paul's handkerchiefs and aprons in Acts 19. So who knows and has the wisdom to heal these people when Peter's shadow falls on them or when the handkerchiefs and aprons come to the afflicted in, in Asia? It's the work of heaven, brothers and sisters. In my estimation, it's the work of the glorified Lord Jesus Christ. And also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed by stretching out your hand to heal. Whatever you ask in my name. And when they, that is the high priest and council, had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they departed, and now Gamaliel has given his advice, leave these men alone. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing, comparing Acts, brothers and sisters, with John. It's evident that prayer in the name of Jesus was petition related to serving God in the name of Jesus, more than it was a formula of words. They let them go, and so they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for His name. What had Jesus said about the promise? That your joy may be full. And this causes us, brothers and sisters, to stop and entirely redefine what joy means. We have a wonderful time here at Bible school. We can have a wonderful time in many of the things we do in life. But here is joy that transcends. And they were suffering shame for the name of Jesus. And daily in the temple... And in every house, they, the apostles, did not cease. Here's the wonderful answer to that prayer. Lord, grant your servants. And he does. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching. Jesus is the Christ. Come what may. Come whatever the, the, the rulers might bring against them. Boldness indeed. Boldness indeed. And our time is gone. You'll have to look in your own notes, brothers and sisters, to see how the apostles themselves will bear testimony to the way that they were instruments in the hands of the Lord Jesus and all the work that they did. There are some comprehensive statements. But let's just turn to page 12 and we'll, we'll bring it to a conclusion here, brothers and sisters. Page 312, the summary. Jeff, you just didn't use that remote control fast enough today. I don't know. <laughs> Here we are. Every day in the life of an apostle was an adventure in faith. Peter, Paul, and the rest ventured forth prayerfully to serve in the name of Jesus, relying on the fact that God would grant the power 
when needed, to advance the cause of the Great Commission. The entire New Testament period can be characterized as an ongoing, dynamic partnership between God and Christ in heaven and the friends of Jesus on earth. They took note that these men had been with Jesus. And it's for the purpose of offering the gospel of salvation to a perishing world. Pentecost was simply day one of the process. The day on which the new covenant was first offered to Israel as an old covenant had been offered to their fathers at Mount Sinai on the first Pentecost of their history.